All right, team, we've got a Sphinx riddle. What was what has one voice but goes on four legs in the morning, two in the afternoon, and three in the evening? So, I want to hear your answer, Megan, because I know it. Yeah, I, I know it as well. What the hell? Well, the, the what? The what? <laughs> so, so for anybody listening, I, I, I threw this on the freaking breakdown to be like, Megan, let's talk about the Sphinx's riddle. And that you're the only one that doesn't know what the damn riddle is, which is phenomenal. Are you Googling it now? I'm Googling it right now because I fuck you guys. <laughs> this, is, this is known as the Sphinx's riddle. I yeah. first heard it on, I think, Batman, the animated series. And like, it's pretty well known in pop culture in like some circles. James, did you look this up or did you just like know it from? This has come up in multiple books as the Sphinx riddle or as yeah. a riddle used for characters. Mm-hmm. Oh, where I know it from. I find the answer kind of stupid personally, but it's, I get it, but I find it stupid. Um, I now I, I've heard it before. Now that I know what the answer is, I have heard this one before. Yeah. And it's for, it came from a movie that I watched and a book that I read, Mirror Mask. I don't know if any of you guys have read and or seen that one. It's another like Neil Gaiman weirdo that's in the corner of the universe. But um, yeah, there's a Sphinx in there and they use they use this riddle now that I've listened and it's looked at it. It's it's classic. It's I like again, I understand the logic behind it. This is not a go-to riddle. And if I were going to ask this, like if I was going to ask riddles to my DD party, this is not the one that I would ask. Because I'm with you, James. I think it's dumb. Yeah. So like it makes sense. We should tell everyone the answer before well, we continue to <laughs> rip it no, apart. No, no, yeah. No, no. Let, let's let's tell them post credits. There we go. Everybody can wait till the end of the episode. Yeah, just think on it. <laughs> Watch, we, we're going to forget to give the answer now and just leave them hanging. Oh, 100%. And then the internet's going to get mad at us, and I'm <laughs> okay with that. That's engagement. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the It's a Mimic podcast, where you never know what you're going to get. Welcome to another It's a Mimic episode where we continue our conversation on monsters in Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition. I'm Adam and with me today are Megan and James and this episode today is called Sphinxes, mainly just lying around to make adventurers pause. (laughs) Oh man, in this episode of the It's a Mimic podcast, this panel of Dungeon Masters is going to provide all the knowledge you need about these winged feline monstrosities of the 5th edition in order to navigate their unique role-playing opportunities. Before we get into it any further, let me ask you, do you like riddles in D&D? No. The role initiative, <laughs> Megan, Jesus. <laughs> like My answer is no. <laughs> 12. 15. Give me a second, I need to find a die. Oh, it's like, a, it's like your first day or something. It's like I'm unprepared. Who would have guessed it? One. Well, Megan, what's your answer then? My answer is no. Fuck. <laughs> I hate riddles in D&D. Why? Uh, riddles make me feel dumb. And I don't like feeling dumb. And so whenever like someone throws a riddle at me, I'm just like, stop it. You're a child. And then I just immediately hate everything on the world in the world. I'm like, just get out of my face. I'm okay with like a puzzle. I'm okay with like a weird, I don't know, like levers and pulleys nonsense to figure something out. Cool. But if you just throw words at me, I feel like it's a cop out. I love riddles. Of course you do. (laughs) And and Megan, you've been on the you've been on the wrong side of the table when I've been handing out riddles. So um (laughs) but I always make a point with my with my party whenever I hand it out. I always make a point to 
because I know who's going to do it, right? It's going to be Charlie and and Dan are all about it. Dave either knows it or he doesn't. He's bored. And Casey either knows it or she doesn't. She's bored. And Megan just shoots daggers at me. Yeah. That's like, you guys figure it out. (laughs) So um, I've handed out riddles in a lot of different campaigns to a lot of varying degrees of success. I think that they're great, but you have to have another option. Because if it's just a riddle that needs to be answered and the party can't do it, where do you go from there? James, how do you feel about him? For me, I kind of hate him, but for the opposite reason Megan does. Well, for more or less the same reason, but the opposite side. I'm Sometimes and often when I play D&D, I somehow acquire leading the party, getting them to move along, figuring out problems, and often answering riddles. But I often know them really quickly. So do I respond right away and get it over with, or do I let the rest of the party have a chance? And I don't want to make people feel dumb sitting there for 20 minutes not solving it, but also feel dumb for me in the first minute to say, well, here's the answer. Yeah, if you and I sat at a table and I knew and I found out you knew the answer from the very beginning, but you made us like fucking sweat yeah, it out exactly. as a group, I'd be like, you can die in a fire disrespectfully. Exactly. Like- <laughs> I don't want to do that, but I also don't want to be like, here's the answer. No one else got to work on it. That's fair. I I remember we did it in our evil campaign a while ago, James, where I was like, all right, let's do a riddle. And you and Dave knew it within seconds. Yeah. And then you got up and went out and had a cigarette, let everybody else sweat it out for like 10 minutes. Yeah. And then you... That group, especially the evil campaign group, would get upset if everyone trampled all over their chance. So... Yeah. So it's... uh, Riddles are not for everybody, and it's definitely something that I I found the best way to give a riddle is to present the riddle at the end of a dungeon when you've given them a bunch of murals and sculptures, and and the answer is in the uh, like exploration, and there's 10 different ways to find the answer, or you can torture your nearest kobold, because talk to your kobolds, Megan, so you can torture them and then get, uh, get the answer out of them. You know what? Always. <laughs> There has to be a way besides can you figure this out with your brain for you to be able to to solve a riddle. So, and that just keeps it even for everybody. There's also been times I've had characters with like eight intelligence where the character would never be able to solve this riddle. Like me as a player knows it, but my character wouldn't have a chance of knowing this. That's actually a really good point because the last time that I ran a riddle, I had uh, Dan there with a character that had like a 21 intelligence at that point. And he's like, Clearly, my character would know this, but I don't. Uh, how how can I how can I learn this? And I'm like, give me an intelligence check, and then I would give him kind of like warmer and colder, or yes or no, and like lead him in the direction. And I'm like, you just I'll give you five guesses for free to just like you figuring it out, and and I'll lead you along. And so that made him feel good um, because you got to play that kind of investigator character. But you know, for the most part. Riddles have to be done differently than they're done in real life, because in real life, it's you know it or you don't. Yeah. Right? And in D&D, you're telling a story and the riddle is just a just a stumbling block, just a, a set piece on the way to the end of the story. Yeah. Gives us something to do in between. Right. Yeah. All right. Before we get any deeper into this, uh, let's cut to an ad break. We've previously covered quite a bit in our discussion on monsters in fifth edition. For all those episodes and more, you can follow or subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and dozens of other podcast apps. If you'd like to support us, you can donate through the website, check out our store, or join our Patreon and get access to other episodes and series. If you'd like to pay for some ad space on It's a Mimic, or just send a shout out to a friend, please reach out to us through our email and website that are listed in the show notes below. 
This week on the It's Mimic Patreon, Copper Wormling tier patrons will get to check out the next episode in the Campaign Builder, which is actually part one in our discussion on mass combat. Patrons that are Bronze Young tier or above will get to check out the Legend Lore Online episode, where I break down the new D&D Beyond crossovers with Critical Role, Grim Hollow, and Minecraft. And Silver Adult tier patrons and above will finally get their hands on the Pantheon episode and the little bonus episode about Forgotten Rules that I have been struggling to get out because of technological issues. But it's all sorted out and they're scheduled and they're ready to go. For everyone else though, later in the week you will get an episode that kicks off Season 2 of Bring Out Your Undead, where the magnificent ladies of It's a Mimic hit the ground running with some infamous and terrifying creatures tied to the negative plane. But for now, let's get back to the episode. Okay, Sphinxes. Before we get into this at all, how familiar are you guys with Sphinxes before this episode? Before you start doing research? I mean, in D&D, not very attuned in any way, shape, or form. I don't think I've ever looked up the stat blocks for a Sphinx in D&D. What about in general? I mean, you see them in movies and TV series, anything fantasy that there's phoenixes all over the place. Not phoenixes, sphinx. Sphinxes. (laughs) Is it sphinx eye? (laughs) No, it is not. It's sphinxes. God damn it. Sphinxes? Sphinx eye. (laughs) Sphinxes plural, a singular sphinx is called a sphincter. (laughs) Oh, man. I love it. Similar D&D, I know nothing of the Sphinx. I've never looked it up. Reading the layer actions, actually, I thought of some really cool way plays in role play with it. But yeah, a general lore of the Sphinx, I would say just above the common like Greek mythology knowledge. Yeah, I I first ran into them in the Neverending Story. Right, they had the two big guardian Sphinxes yeah. there, the big statues, and they were they actually scared me when I was a kid when I saw that for the first time. I'm like, those are unnecessarily creepy and deadly and. They shot lasers out of their eyes for some reason. And I thought it was really cool. Um, And then, like, yeah, just, like, general fantasy every once in a while, you bump into one. But it's the same note over and over. And I was really looking forward to diving into this and jumping into some, like, really cool, unique D&D lore. And then I read what 5th edition had to offer. And I am, I've got complaints. Vastly disappointed. (laughs) Vastly disappointed. These are probably one of the... Like, clearly, these were on the list of things to add, and the person that did this put in the absolute bare minimum to fill up three pages in the Monster Manual. In theory, these are legendary creatures that should have layer actions and regional effects, and and they're not, like, above CR20, but they're powerhouses, and they're supposed to feel like a powerhouse. They're supposed to be majestic and beautiful, but also alien and scary at the same time. And none of that is supported. None of that is supported by the lore or really the mechanics on this. Um, And a lot of the times it's contradictory or there's clearly things that are missing. Um, The Sphinx is known in pop culture for guarding with a riddle. You cannot go any further unless you answer this riddle. And, And so they took that very basic idea and just turned it from riddle to pass a test and then they don't even really give you examples of what the tests could be or um, how difficult they should be or how you would build one or what the DC should be. There's none of that. So it's 
Anyway, let me get into it. Sphinxes, according to the Monster Manual, are large creatures with the body of a lion, the head of a humanoid, and the wings of eagles. Although it's never mentioned anywhere in the text that they have wings at all in their descriptions, it's just in the artwork and they have a fly speed. If you didn't have a picture, these would just be lions with humanoid heads that fly. They also get some pretty regal looking jewelry, which is neat. It, the jewelry itself is kind of vaguely Egyptian feeling, um, which is odd. Is the Sphinx Greek or was it Egyptian? Originally, Egyptian, right? Like it's appears in many type of lores without the same face. Not always, right? It's uh, yeah, and not always with wings. Not always with wings. Yeah, yeah not always with the full lionoid <laughs> body. But I think Egypt was the original. It's so, based on spelling too. Yeah. But the thing that, that stands out to me right off the bat on here is that these are large creatures. You know, this is large? A lion. These are just lions with wings. These are just lions with heads that look like humanoid heads. And again, humanoid. So like it could be it, it could be like a one one of the weirder ones, like a gif is a humanoid. It could have a hippo head, right? It's not specific. They didn't say a human head, they just said a humanoid head. This could be the head of a Goliath or the head of a a tiefling or a dragonborn it's just humanoid um so you go to the art to then be like okay but what is it actually and they don't give you a humanoid head they give you a lion's head with human ears so it's just a yeah. lion with wings and human ears what the fuck is going on already <laughs> i'm pissed off about the sphinx in fifth edition so the next thing that drove me nuts is that these things are monstrosities that guard the secrets of treasures of the gods. They're always linked to a specific god that created them, but most are just spirits that the god has imbued with power to have a new form to guard something specific. So, in D&D, if the gods have created a creature, they are a humanoid, a celestial, or specifically a titan. These guys are monstrosities only, and they're not even titans, which drives me crazy because are if they're spirits that the gods of uh, should they be undead? We see all sorts of undead they're guardians. monstrosities because of how they're made. So if the god created a statue and then sliced off a par portion of its soul to put inside to be the guardian, that is a monstrous thing to do. You've attacked a soul. No, That's but but just. But specifically in 5th edition, a monstrosity is created by a wizard. A titan is created by a god. These things should be titans. That it's very specific everywhere else in fifth edition, except in the for the Sphinx, apparently. Oh, I'm sure there's a bunch of other things not specific in fifth edition they fuck with. Oh, well. So um Sphinxes do not need to eat or sleep, although this info is buried in the text and has no mechanical breakdown. Um, they're almost entirely solitary and completely devoted to their mission, which means that they don't go out there and they have no need to explore the world or to socialize with anybody, or to role-play whatsoever. They are there for one purpose and one person, uh, one pers purpose only, and that purpose is to guard, hard stop. They are usually found in ruins or ancient tombs, but they also have the ability to access other bizarre and alien realms. So the idea here is that when you approach one, it's really intimidating, because there are corpses and skeletons of all of the people that have come before you that have failed the test. And so the Sphinx kills them because they failed. And then you meet the Sphinx. Sometimes you have to summon it. And then partway through the conversation, you actually may find yourself gradually shifting into an extra planar landscape to undergo your trial. So you're not even in the ruins or the tomb anymore. And then sometimes on top of that, 
The Sphinx actually just hides in the other space and waits to be summoned, so you can just wander through a tomb full of bones and corpses and not realize that this is where the Sphinx lives. So I know we're going to cover uh, Sphinx's layers in a minute here, but it's it's really weird that it, the, you, you have to know it's there in order to come upon it, right? And then even then, it's hard to escape. Partway through the conversation, you get transported away. It's not even like when the trial starts. It's before the trial, you're committed. Here you go. As guardians, they exist They exist not just to stop people, but to determine who is worthy. So these are not people that say, you know, you shall not pass, but, you know, what's the password, essentially? But they do this with a number of tests. There's usually one test per person, uh, and what that test is, is not defined anywhere at all in the lore. All we know is that what they're guarding can, can be anything from ancient knowledges that the gods have, to powerful spells, to artifacts, to magical gateways. But to undergo a test of a sphinx is to agree to bet your life. Failure means death. That's the agreement before it even starts. It doesn't mean that if you fail, you start to get into combat. No, you just die. When you fail, the Sphinx gets to kill you. That is the deal. Hard stop. Sphinxes are set up to be boundaries that pause or inconvenience the party for a short period of time with a binary yes-no, do-you-pass-do-you-fail kind of test. Only the worthy will survive. It's very explicit. Only the worthy will survive. Except for one sentence where it says that some merciful gods will just have you teleported far away uh, and you won't be killed. But all of the other lore, every other part of the Sphinx lore is you will definitely die except when your DM doesn't want you to. So I understand why they added that, though. I understand, too, because it's so... Like, it's a big handcuff to it's be like... Mechanics. Yeah, it's mechanics. And it's also for the D&D DMs who refuse to do anything that's not in the book. So if the book said you pass hard stop or fail hard stop, there's a group of DMs out there that their party would pass or fail hard stop, whether they're level 19, 20, whatever. So without that in the book, people will just screw years of campaigns just because. It just It's wild to me that they would spend paragraph after paragraph after paragraph saying you will definitely die just at the very end say except maybe not yeah right? like the, this is what i mean by the by whoever wrote this section did not did not think this section through they clearly didn't give a shit and there was no oversight with the editing they were like this seems mean i'm just gonna make this neutral as fuck <laughs> they, definitely too. they could say the dm can choose a god pulls them out and then that takes it away from the physical lore of it and puts it back into mechanics yeah mm -hmm. so regardless though if you fail the test the path forward or the object that you're after or the knowledge or whatever fades and disappears because they're protected by divine magic um it's god level magic you can't fix this with a ninth level spell this is the gods intervening so if it's like hey we need to get that magical glowing crystal ball it will be put on a pedestal in front of you but if you fail the test it will just fade slowly and then disappear even if you attack and defeat the sphinx you still didn't pass the test so the reward vanishes you have to pass the test Apparently, there are also some sphinxes that can break free of their gods' missions. There's a whole paragraph on fallen sphinxes. However, they still never leave their lair, even if they do that, and they never stop guarding their charges from people that aren't worthy. They just no longer follow the god, which seems like a really weird specific thing to throw in there, and a lot of words to 
to say they're going to react exactly the same way as just without a god behind them. You don't have to link them to a god, apparently. And that's what we have on Sphinxes. Like the general. Sorry? I like that last part, though. The can't be used, like, is broken away from their god. Just because in a book I was reading, they had a Sphinx who was supposed to guard a library. So it's supposed to guard the knowledge. But the library wasn't full of knowledge. So it spent its time learning new things, gaining more knowledge to protect it, thus breaking away from their god's control and becoming a god in their own right. I'm going to talk a little bit later about a Sphinx, a very specific Sphinx, that has nothing to do with um with gods or or divine magic or anything as well um because we get one in ravnica which is notorious for like not giving you anything on gods um it's all guild based but um for the most part this is where we landed with sphinx can we let's grab dice i want to ask you guys really quickly how do you feel about this so i got to three six sorry who got an eight i got an eight all right megan um how do you feel about sphinx lore in general uh It's very generic, and to your point, not a lot of detail. Like, I almost like the idea when you have creatures like this that they're not just, like, spawned and created, but, like, they have a place. They have a community. They have, like, a place where they just exist, whereas these these just don't. There's nothing, there's no meat and potatoes to them. So if you're going to add something to it, you as a DM can definitely kind of, like, retcon something or build something but sometimes that's not the point of these kinds of like lustrous creatures so it's kind of annoying that we don't have a lot to go off of but then again at the same time is like dms we always talk about how like the limited lore helps us be more creative because we're required to think of a reason or rhyme or why they would be there other than celestial beings and know-how especially if you're playing a game that doesn't have gods and goddesses which can happen right so I think that it would be fair to say that there's just, there's not enough for me. It's just a small amount. It's like, it's like a crumb, (laughs) a crumb of Sphinx. (laughs) So it's not quite a full pride. It is just a a solo Sphinx. (laughs) It's the Simba to its pride. (laughs) There's nothing to be proud of here. James, what do you what do you think about these? I agree it's very lackluster and it's kind of forcing the party not to have a combat encounter, which overall is a good thing. Like parties should use their brains way more often than they do, but still you're hamstringing your party into you're either succeeding this and getting your MacGuffin or you're probably dying. What's interesting here is that it never says that the test has to be a riddle, right? And we started off talking about riddles because traditionally speaking, that's what people think of when it comes to sphinxes, but it never says anything about the nature of the test. The test could be something as simple as climb this rock wall, but you know, the wall is crumbling and there's going to be shit being thrown at you the whole time. But then or just put can... a MacGuffin at the top and why have a sphinx? Exactly, Right. Um, and it's, you can get extra planar with it and get really weird, or you can make it be riddles, or you can say, Hey, go out and find these four things. And when you return to me, you'll prove that you're worthy. And then, then it's just fetch quests, right? But it could be anything. But if that's the point, why have a Sphinx? Yeah. Right. So, um, honestly, for me, considering how vague all of it is, it's kind of bullshit that the stuff they do give us, then almost immediately gets contradicted right so i don't mind it being a little bit more open so that different people can use it in different ways but at least give us a fucking inspiration and don't just make it you know we didn't bother to add details so you do it yourself yeah i feel like most fifth edition stuff when it comes to like making especially when it comes to making like a a riddle or a test make a simple fucking table 
with 10 ideas on it that would be a test that a sphinx would give and then roll on the table when they get there right so this game loves its fucking tables why do they not have a goddamn table (laughs) (laughs) because i because they didn't bother to put any thought into the sphinxes it's just very clear about that (laughs) however i feel like the one place that they did give us um a little bit of inspiration was when it came to their layers specifically that was by far the best part that i was reading about was oh like part way through your conversation you're transported to an extra planar space and blah 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 um james you've got some information about the layer actions that you get yeah so it's layer action can only take place on initiative count 20 you can get it back after a shorter long rest which is a little ridiculous for some of the things it can do, to be perfectly honest with you. Hmm. It can alter the flow of time and force the whole party to re-roll initiative and choose for itself not to re-roll. So if it gets a really bad roll, roll again, everyone. Good luck. Yeah. Uh, another one of its effects, once again, altering time, can force the party to roll a DC 15 constitution saving throw or become 1 to 20 years older or younger, the Sphinx's choice. You can never go below one, but you can go to a point you die. Hmm. Yes. Uh, Another one, once again, back on time, the flow of time within their layer can be altered and can move it 10 years forward or backward. Once again, the Sphinx's choice and only the Sphinx is immediately aware of the time change. A wish spell can return everyone back. uh, Sorry, up to seven other creatures back, including the cat plus the caster, which that one's a little weirdly worded to me. So if they move 10 years forward in time, has events of 10 years in that cavern occurred or 10 years back in time? Or is it just that local space has now moved in time? I feel like the whole world has shifted, but this space itself, um, there's no like erosion. You don't see anything crumble. It's just this place is protected. And the whole world outside this space well, is displacing. That's kind of how I read it. But even yeah. then, if you're just, you could just be displacing the local space 10 years in time. So everyone inside has now moved physically 10 years forward. This yeah. Taken either way. So that's. I think that when we think layer actions too, if you look at like dragon layer actions or like any other beastie, yeah. they're very specific to a distance and like yeah like it's a distance thing so it's like within 500 feet of the layer these things affect so as a dm i would almost say that it's just the one area of the 500 feet within where this thing has its abilities or could it be the one area that it's protecting from the flow of time yeah it's kind of what i'm thinking it doesn't move in time but everything else moves around it that's where the open end, I guess it's meant to be open-ended. This whole Sphinx deal seems to be open-ended, so you can put your own thing in. Yep. The other and there's thing, one last thing a Sphinx can do. Hold on, hold on. Before we move any further, the, the other thing I want to point out about this one is it's total bullshit, because this is DM kerfuckery. Yeah. When, when you're an initiative count, that means that when you are, because you're in combat with the Sphinx, and remember, if you kill the Sphinx, you don't pass the test. The thing leaves, the Sphinx is dead, that's it. And then you step outside, not realizing that on round three, it used its layer action because the players don't know it uses its, its layer action to turn back time. Okay, so like, fuck, you or move move time forward. So not only did you not, did you kill the Sphinx and so you, you can no longer take the test, you also didn't get the item and now you are displaced from time and all of your side quests are fucked. Yep. <laughs> on, on initiative count 20 on like round three or whatever, right? Like, that's so fucky. There's, and there's yeah. a way around it. It just is. That feels like DM kerfuckery. And without a wish spell, you can't undo it. 
Yeah, that's just that's just wild. Yeah. 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 And the Sphinx's last layer ability is to shift itself and up to seven other creatures it can see into another plane of existence. So once outside its lair, the Sphinx can't use its lair action, but it can return with a bonus action, choosing to bring back those seven creatures. So it can just leave you in a different dimension. Now, my question is, can a Sphinx have two layers? Can I have one in both dimensions so it always has a layer action? I would say yes. Look, dragons get multiple layers because they have multiple hordes. Yeah. And I'm sitting here thinking... You've got your your mortal realm where the Sphinx is dealing with people and probably hangs out most of the time, but also another like extra planar area where the thing is like you think when the Sphinx was created by the god, this is probably where the god talked to the Sphinx. This is probably where the item, the MacGuffin is for you to go get. This is probably where the test takes place. The Sphinx very much rules this place in the name of a divine power. Yeah, it's their lair. Exactly. So now you're going from one of their layers to another one of their layers. They can keep you there as long as they want. So while you're trying to answer their riddle or solve their puzzle, they waited a long, short rest. They now have their layer action back. They can push you 10, 10 years in time, push you 10 years in time again. If it takes the players a couple of hours, a couple of days to solve the issue, they could be hundreds of years forward in time or backward in time without even knowing it. Okay, I've got a couple of questions. Let's let's grab dice again. One again. I'm throwing this dice away. <laughs> I got Nine. a 14. Okay, so Meg is not going first for a change. Hey, oh. So my first question is, um, what is a good, besides a ruin or a tomb, what do you think is a good layer on like the mortal realm? Library. James, you rolled a one. I don't care. I'm winning. <laughs> I'm winning. <laughs> I was thinking a really good place would be a mountaintop, right? This They feel like they could be, if you're going after a specific piece of knowledge and you've got to go talk to the quote unquote wise man on the mountaintop, that wise man could very likely be a sphinx. Yeah. And I think that, that would be super thematic and a lot of fun. And it's almost a test and a trial to get to the top of the mountain anyway. So that's, I mean, they clearly love their solitude. This is going to to promote that idea as well, that they are disinterested in dealing with people unless those people are really determined to seek them out. Megan, do you have anything? I, I Temples is what comes to mind, like like churches and things like that. Like, of course, because they're godly, that kind of thing. Like, I'm immediately reminded of like Shisa, which sit in front of most temples like it just having two sphinxes sitting there which mm-hmm. is look normal and natural but they'll just be protectors that will determine the good and evil of someone as they walk through kind of thing and like they won't react unless they see that you are of negative or cold heart right they're just there to make sure that whoever enters the space is of good nature kind of thing like that or i mean i like james's idea of a library it kind of makes sense but i feel like if i was to see a sphinx in a library they'd be sitting there reading a book themselves you know like <laughs> Just in a corner. <laughs> well, I was more thinking outside the front, <laughs> sitting there like a statue in the yeah. major city, like the royal capital, full of people. And your party eventually stumbles across it and says the right combination of words or has the right book or item or whatever, where they're slowly pulled into this space while they still think they're in the capital. So like using thaumaturgy or whatever the hell to make it sound like people are everywhere still. And they have to solve this riddle without knowing they've left the royal capital and figure this all out because that'd be hilarious in the middle of the city or whole parties now in a different realm that they don't know they're in good luck i'm also now thinking of like a large wizard's like graveyard is guarded by one or two of these 
so that you can't find their bodies and or their tombs and get to like possibly kill them without their phylacteries or what have you. Oh, that's so good. We should have an undead version for liches, the protectors yeah. of the phylacteries. Well, what about yeah. the ones that are fallen that just falls right into place? Yeah, and it wouldn't take much to just broken by a lich. Yeah, no, it wouldn't take much to just add the uh, the undead nature. It doesn't need to, you know, it already doesn't need to eat or sleep, but like it doesn't need to breathe or drink water, and it uh, is going to do like necrotic damage. Like it's not going to take much to make one of these things undead. No, I now want to make an undead one. <laughs> Megan, you know I'm taking notes for our campaign. I don't know why you get excited about this. You should you should dread. If I see an undead sphinx, I'm gonna be like, you bitch. <laughs> and if you if you throw me an undead sphinx and then throw it at me, I'd be like, that's it, I'm leaving. You better <laughs> throw it at her. And it better be a good one. All right. Your struggle for an hour. Yeah. Um, before we jump into this, um, to the actual stat blocks and the two different kinds of sphinxes we have. There's another riddle that they actually gave us uh, in the monster manual, and they do not give us the answer. Round she is, yet flat as a board, altar of the lupine lords, jewel on black velvet, pearl in the sea, unchanging, but o'erchanging eternally. The moon. Yeah, that's the moon. We so love a good moon. <laughs> I don't like riddles, whether I know it or not, with enough context. I mean, Whereas I'm, I'm sitting here like, what? Yeah, maybe it's like, oh God, there's a riddle. I'm like, nah, the mood. I got this. Oh shit! I'm leaving. Another party with me. <laughs> so, Megan, you've got one sphinx, and I've got the other. Um, mm -hmm. Let's uh, let's you and I roll off. So who's going to go first? Sure. Four. Natural twenty. Oh my god! What the fuck? I'm eating up all that uh, that dice karma that James is just dying with. Yeeted out the window. Apparently, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> directly into. My really dice. good. I missed my D and D game today. <laughs> Happy to be here, guys. <laughs> so. The very first thing about the Andro Sphinx that you should know is that it is a CR-17. Um, this is the head of a humanoid male, I guess. Again, it looks just like a like a lion with human ears. But, uh, but it's interesting because for the Sphinxes, the way that they've broken them out is there's the male and the female. I don't know why they did it this way, but they did. I think there might be an like an old lore reason for this, but I couldn't find anything with a quick Google search. Um, what we do know is that the Andro Sphinx is usually gruff and uh, his demeanor is very negative, starting off with insults and minor judgments like a stereotypical television mother-in-law. He is going to de like degrade and humiliate you uh, before you even get to the part where you're going to take a test. I think that the point of this is to make the players um, feel overwhelmed by the presence of this creature uh, and make it realize that the, or make them realize that it's smarter than they are and that it is absolutely willing to pass judgment right off the bat. But underneath all of that is an honest and true noble warrior that uses careful words and wisdom to interact with those who approach it, clearly putting them on the defensive and the back foot so that they will never have the upper hand going into one of the tests. The Andro Sphinx not only tests bravery and honor with the quests and tests, but also it has a very, very fearsome roar, and I will get into that in a moment. Succeeding on a test uh, that an Andro Sphinx gives you not only grants you your prize, but it also gives you the benefits of Hero's Feast. Uh, the spell. So for those of you that aren't up to date on Heroes Feast, uh, here's what you get from it. Whoever casts the spell gets to bring forth a great feast 
including magnificent food and drink. Uh, the feast can take an hour to consume and it disappears at the end of the time. Um, and the beneficial effects don't set in until the hour is over. So uh, up to 12 creatures can partake in the feast. And when it's done, they feel very full. They feel well rested. The creature that partakes in the feast gains several benefits. They're cured of all diseases and poisons. They become immune to poison and being frightened. And they make all wisdom saving throws with advantage. Its hit point maximum also increases by 2d10. And it gains the same number of hit points. These benefits last for 24 hours. So you are immune to poison for 24 hours after Hero's Feast. So not only do you just pass the test and get your thing, you also get this huge set of boons with it. When it gets into the stat block itself, we get an AC of 17 and on average 200 hit points. You get 40 foot movement speed and 60 foot fly speed, which is pretty good for a large monstrosity. I still wish that they were bigger. I, I feel like they should be huge, at least. I think you should be looking up at a 15-foot lion, right? Like, not... The sizes in 5e, they are stupid. I do not disagree. So, um, I skimmed over it, but these, these guys are lawful neutral. Um, I think that the uh, Gino Sphinx is as well, right? So, um, their stats are pretty solid across the board. Their dex is a 10... Um, but everything else is a minimum of 16, up to their strength and charisma, which are up in the low 20s. They've got some decent saving throws uh, across the board, except for strength and charisma, because those are already super high anyway. And they've got uh, some big bonuses in Arcana, Perception, and Religion. They're completely immune to psychic damage and any non-magical bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing damage. They're also immune to being charmed and frightened, which makes a lot of sense, and it's really good for someone who's going to be testing people. They have True Sight out to 120 feet and Passive Perception of 20. So with True Sight out to 120 feet, you are not going to just turn invisible or pretend that you're somebody else and walk past this guy. He's going to know that you are there. And he's going to know what you look like and who you are. As far as languages go, they speak Common, which is good. I mean, they've got to get about the riddles. They also speak Sphinx. Nothing else speaks Sphinx. Sphinxes speak Sphinx, and they also don't talk to anyone else, and they have no real use for other Sphinxes. So why does Sphinx get a language? I fuck. What is it? What does Sphinx sound like? Like, is it just lion, but in a different dialect? Like, <laughs> I assume it's it's celestial with more purring. Mm, mm, fair, fair, fair. Um, they they roll their R's in celestial. That's what that is. So. <laughs> They have a feature called inscrutable, and this means that it's immune to any effect that would sense its emotions or read its thoughts, uh, as well as uh, it's immune to any divination spell that it wants to be immune to. Inside checks made to figure out the Sphinx's intentions or sincerity have disadvantage. Also, their weapon attacks, which are just claws, uh, count as magical attacks, which honestly doesn't seem like a big fucking deal. We start to see this more and more when we get to this, like, tier four stuff is these are these count as magic when was the last time that you as players got armor or a spell or anything that says you're resistant to non-magical bludgeoning slashing or piercing right that seems to be only a monster thing and not a player thing so it's weird that they got that and then on top of that they're 12th level spellcasters uh which means that they've got a spellcasting ability uh which is wisdom uh which gives them a dc of 18 and a plus 10 to hit with spell attacks they're essentially pulling stuff off of the cleric spell list, everything from cantrips at low level, like Sacred Flame, Spare the Dying, and Thaumaturgy, 
The other things that stood out to me were detect evil and good, which makes sense, command, zone of truth, dispel magic and tongues, banishment, greater restoration, and then, of course, at the end, Heroes Feast, because they give that to you if you succeed. Um, there's a lot of interesting and on-theme, uh, like kind of on-brand spells here. I didn't give the whole list, but that's that's solid. It's good. You get to cast a bunch of those multiple times as well. So, sure. They have a multi-attack, which essentially just means that it can make two claw attacks, which have a plus 12 to hit and do 2d10 plus 6 slashing damage. I fucking hate tier 4 creatures that are not doing 7d8 damage. Like 2d10 plus 6. 17 damage to a 17th level paladin is bullshit. That is nothing. It is bullshit. I hate that. Basically and, a cat scratch. Just me. Yes. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, they also, however, get to roar three times a day. And I mentioned earlier that they've got this big roar that really challenges people and tests the bravery. The roar itself is a kind of series of tests. It emits this magical roar. And each time it does, before finishing a long rest, the roar gets louder and louder and louder with different effects. Each creature within 500 feet of the Sphinx uh, and able to hear the roar has to make a saving throw. So you can't just target one person. It's everyone within 500 feet that can hear. So the first roar uh, makes them roll a DC 18 wisdom saving throw or you're frightened for one minute. Again, regular 5th edition bullshit. You can re-roll at the end of each of your turns, ending the effect uh, uh, if it's successful. The second roar, though, each creature that fails a DC 18 wisdom save is deafened and frightened for one minute. A frightened creature now is paralyzed, but they can still repeat the throw, blah, blah, blah. The third roar, each creature has to make a DC 18 constitution save now, and on a failed save, the creature takes 8d10 thunder damage and is knocked prone. That feels a fuck of a lot better. But you know what? It took us three rounds to get to it. On a successful uh, save, the creature takes half as much damage and isn't knocked prone. Fine, but like, this is clearly not a combatant. Not by a damn sight. All of the stuff that I listed out for spells as well, besides like, I think there's Flame Strike in there and Sacred Flame, I don't think there's anything else in there that does damage. So you're not meant to fight these guys. They have legendary actions. Uh, for one action, they'd make another claw attack, but who gives a shit? For two actions, they can teleport up to 120 feet with whatever they're wearing and carrying. Um, and then for three, they can cast a spell. But again, it's not doing damage. All of that is really defensive, right? Yeah, it's like defensive. It almost feels very um, like lawful good paladin-esque where they're not, they don't actually want to hurt or kill you. Their goal is to remove you or like just get you out of its space, not necessarily hurt you or kill you. Yeah. So like, yeah. that's it. That's, that's everything that we have for, for the Andro Sphinx. Again, I like, I love that it's CR 17 and the Sphinx should be big and scary, but it's large size. It can make loud roars, cast some kind of buff or debuff spells and then teleport away. It's basically the cowardly lion with wings. Kinda, yeah. So let's yeah. Uh, let's grab dice because I got questions. Yeah. Seven. Ten. Seventeen. The combination of both of yours. All right. So I guess I'm gonna go first. When it comes for an Andro Sphinx, what is one storyline, a reason why you would go find the Andro Sphinx? What's what's a thing that it could be guarding besides just like generic MacGuffin? Is there anything that stands out about this power set or the spells that it has or it's CR that makes you think, hey, this is the big thing. Like, what, what's the quest? What's the MacGuffin? What's the thing you're sending your party to go get? Um, and for me, honestly, I'm looking at the spell list and I see that it has um, 
tongues and banishment, which means I think that this thing is a and like with the teleport as well. This thing is planar shifting. We know that it can do that with its layer actions. So I'm going to have this actually be your mode of transportation to get to another plane. Mm -hmm. And you can get to the other plane. Like you would walk into an area where you know the Sphinx lives. Um, and let's say you want to go to the, well, they've got wings. So the plane of air, the elemental plane of air. You want to go there. So you have to get up to the top of a mountain. It's really, really windy outside. There's um, strength checks that have to be made before you can get into this cave at the very peak of the mountain you go to see the sphinx and as you're talking to them they transport you over to the plane of air but that's not the test the test happens while you're there and if you fail he just yeets you off the the little floating island <laughs> and you fall for eternity right so that's the idea of we need to get to the elemental plane of air but it's going to come with this caveat right we're going to get there just fine but are we going to be able to survive the first 10 minutes? Because the Sphinx is going to say, okay, now that you're here, you've got to earn your own life moving forward. And then assuming that everybody does, a mystical bridge will appear to the next place, right? So to the next island further away. It's a 10-mile-long rope bridge, right? Something something wacky. But uh, Megan, what do you have for an Andro Sphinx? I, well, as I kind of mentioned early, these ones kind of give me a feel of like a paladin or even like a cleric just in cat form. I like the idea that in your party, you have a paladin or a cleric that has lost or broken their magical attuned item. Lost or broken, like their sword gets shattered or the shield that has the crest on it gets broken or something along those lines. And the only place for you to get a new one is to visit the sphinx that guards like a horde of them. And like it, the gods have sent the Sphinx to protect it because they're like, well, only those worthy of our name can grab another one, basically. Or even just like fix it. Yeah. Like the only one that can put the power back in is the Sphinx. Yeah. Because like how often do you have like a magical character that loses or breaks it? It happens every once in a while just for like story and development. But never do you really go through a process of trying to get a new one. Usually in my experience playing a lot of clerics and like, other magical religious characters um you find a new way to do it like you carve their symbol into a new shield and then you imbue it with magic or you take it to a temple or a church or what have you whereas like this religion is very hyper specific of this is the one creature that can do it so you have to go on adventure to get the MacGuffin. so it'd be fun to do that as your capstone to 19 mission if you're doing uh milestone leveling yeah. So for you to become a level 20 character, you need to go see this Sphinx. All mm -hmm. level 20 paladins, clerics, whatever, see this Sphinx. No matter the religion, depending on what game you're playing to. Yeah. That's a cool idea, yeah. It's very Final Fantasy, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yes. I, I feel like it doesn't necessarily even have to be a cleric because um, uh, rangers use divine magic, right? And yeah. the Horizon Walker ranger feels like a Sphinx could be kind of their their emblem, right? Because they're very much about teleporting around and, and walking the planes and all that shit. Um, and then having the ability to unlock their big capstone thing, like James says, you have to have a meeting with the Sphinx and get a proper Sphinx magical power up, right? That'd be a good surprise for that Ranger character. So yeah. have it that, like, by standard, only divine classes see this guy. Yeah. Rangers see someone in the forest where the druids see. But this particular ranger, when they go on this mission with the paladin, all of a sudden gets pulled into a separate plane. And it's like, we're testing you separately. Mm -hmm. Because instead of being divine, you're spatial magic. Here's some spatial magic tests. James, do you have a, 
uh, another quest or a... Similar to both yours, but as a general guard to be able to hop planes. And this is the guy that berates you, right? So as he's berating you, he judges your action there. And if you take it as a grain of salt, like a chip on your shoulder and don't complain, don't get mad about it, don't act up, you get an easy task drop to where you want to be in that realm. But the more you lip off, the more you fight back, the more attitude you give, the further the location is from where you want to be and the harder it is for you to solve. Because you as the DM know exactly where that party needs to be. So the party's all like, yep, we're idiots. We're bad. Sorry for that big master uh, beast man. And you solve the problem that's really easy. He's like, here, you're outside the door of the house of the guy you're trying to find. You made your trip real easy by being the bigger person and not reacting to me. I love this, but I'm telling you right now, only Casey and Dan would actually pass this test at my table. Yes, that's the point. The yeah. point is, and you should let your players through talking to people they interact with, hearing, overhearing stuff. It is rumored that the nicer you are and the more you accept, the easier it is. So do your nice players who would accept this try to calm down the idiot players you have? Or do they let them do it and make things worse? My idiot players would make things worse. Let that's me tell you. Let me tell you, I have two idiot players that would make, like, Dave would be like, well, fuck you then and try to shoot you in the head. And that's pretty straightforward and normal. And yeah. Mieka would roll her eyes and go, whatever, and just toss attitude. But Megan and Charlie would be would have such attitude problems about this. This would be a fucking thing. Well, now we have to slay a sphinx, would be the brand new, because they were like, well, pardon the pun, a little catty when they yeah. first met, right? And now all of a sudden, Megan's just like, well, fuck it, I'm strapping on those those hand wraps and my monk is going to go to town on this fucking giant lion yeah i was gonna say like with the current party we are playing with yes yep. my character would be a, a twat but in our previous campaign my no, paladin would have been just fine but yeah. no absolutely i am playing the this is dumb i'm gonna hit it yeah. <laughs> why are you wasting my time <laughs> and, and let, let me be clear I know James as well would sit there and be like, wow, that was rude, but okay. And then he would get through the whole thing and say, all right, I've passed. Great. Fireball. Yeah. <laughs> you attack it after you've dealt with the issue, not yeah. before. Oh, my Atlanta. <laughs> yeah. I've already passed <laughs> your test before I left that room. Yeah. <laughs> I can't stop me now. <laughs> I'm through, motherfucker. It's like, I can still hear you. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the role playing on Sphinxes, I find, is really, really handcuffed. Um, it's really upfront with the fact that, like, they don't want anything except to test you. They want to remain as aloof as possible, and they do not want to interact with you. Uh, and they are there to essentially ferry you from one state of not having a thing to the state of having a thing, assuming you can pass a test. And they're all riddle or test based. They're not there to be your friends. They're not there to be your enemies. And when it comes to an Andros Sphinx, oh, also, you showed up wearing those shoes, right? Like, it's it's very, very straightforward. So I don't really have any questions about role-playing. I feel like this is very specific and has written itself. Do you guys have any insights about it directly? Yeah, uh, I, I mean, like, to the to earlier point from James, like, they, they berate you. So yeah. I think that's something to keep in mind is that, like, get ready to make fun of your party. If I was to play one of these in my campaigns and I knew my team was coming up to them, I would go looking in my hunting in my characters' backstories to find shit that I could throw at them. Mm -hmm. 
just like small jabs and quick whips. You know what I mean? So that's how I would prep a role play for this one. Make sure you're jabbing the player's character, not the player. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm saying. Backstories. Yeah. Very yeah. specific. But it's yeah. really easy to poke something at a player at the table instead of their character. So be careful of that. And role play for me, I feel like Sphinx takes things very literally. So yeah. if their god told them, guard the item on this pedestal, it doesn't really matter what item's on that pedestal at the end of the day to them, whether the players know that or not. So if they replace the shield with a different shield and then take the shield that was there before, the Sphinx wouldn't have cared. The party just never tried that because they were told to guard what's on the pedestal. There's something on the pedestal, they continue to guard it. So I, I love little ways out like that, that if you think logically on the rules set out for them, there's ways around it. I love the idea of the test being something as simple as um, there, there's like a glowing rod or something on a pedestal. And you're like, and hey, we have to go get this rod. And the only thing you have to do is give up the item that is most important to you. And then when you as the player are like, oh, it's this, the DM's going to be like, mm, is it? Or is it this thing? Or how do you feel about this? And you're like, oh, yeah, right. My heirloom. Or, oh, fuck, that that cloak that I forgot that I've, I've just been used to that plus three to AC, right? Like what's the thing? And then when you have to sit there and hum and ha and you hand it over and you get the rod, that's great that they turn to the next player and like, okay, now in order for you to get the thing on the pedestal, you have to give up the thing that is the most important to you. And so they're just going to trade back and get that robe or, or item back. The first player gave up. So it's the person that goes last who is not going to be able to get their item back. And the person, and like, and that's the real test is who are the people that were willing to make the sacrifices first? They get rewarded by getting their shit back. The people that weren't willing to make the sacrifice don't get their shit back. So um, when it comes to an Andro Sphinx, I, we talked a little bit about like the cool like uh, material plane places where they could be. Do you have an extra planar location where you would want to find one of these guys? You know, because they shift halfway through the encounter, right? For me, I like I mentioned the plane of air before, but... I like the idea more of like pocket dimensions that are just weird. Like yeah. you end up uh, floating through a giant purple cosmos on a small island and you can just magically breathe here and it's fine. And there are just like floating staircases out in the middle of nowhere and there's just doors tumbling through the air. And you are sitting here on a small like 40 by 40 foot flat plane. Like And, and the island you're on is made out of pure obsidian. Right. And like you just make it as weird and alien as possible. Um, and uh to have this encounter. And then what whatever the Sphinx needs you to do, they will manifest whatever that next location is. Yeah. I kind of like the idea they're able to change their dimension as they please. And following the idea for role play that you had, put every player into a separate dimension. So they know they need to get the item from the pedestal. They know they need to give up one of their items for it but they don't know the others are going to do the same. They don't know if the item they're getting is different from the other. So everyone will give up an item. So you do it over text, do it over messaging or something. So each player decides in what order they reply to you in a private chat, who gets their item back. Mm -hmm. I like your idea, but once the first and second person go, if you have a party of five or six, they know they're getting their item back if they're not last. So this eliminates them knowing. I would just I would just tell them ahead of time. I'm like, each of you will go through the test. Everyone will sacrifice something. What's your marching order? Who's going first? Yeah. And there will be one person says, well, I'm going to go last because I don't want to do this. And that yeah. that person is Mieka. And she I was going to say, say, you mean Mieka. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
the 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 player that is like, well, this is bullshit, and I don't want to do it. So I will drag my feet and make everybody else wait as I roll my eyes. So, yeah. yeah. Megan, do you have any extra dimensional planar space that you would like? Not necessarily like like weird dimensional stuff, but I like the idea of comparing them with giants. And I know that's like a little weird, you know, not weird for me because I love giants. Yeah. But like they have a connection to a cloud giant colony or something like that. Like one of their temples is there. So they'll drop you in a cloud giant area, like in the middle of a flying castle. And it's like, okay, well, now you have to deal with cloud giants. Have a nice time. Like, so depending on what's going on, like I just, yeah, I feel like if you're trying to introduce a different kind of monstrosity or kind of beastie, using these ones to transport you to a land where those exist would be a way to introduce new and fun things. That's actually a really good way of getting up to the cloud. Instead of just the fucking beanstalk. Yeah. That's a great way to like get up there because you have to deal with the Sphinx. The Sphinx is the only way to get from here to the cloud giants. Yeah. So um, any insights about um, combat for these guys, despite the fact that like they clearly don't want to fight? Yeah. I mean, I like the fact that I like their roar. I think it's neat. Yeah. yeah. You know, like it's it's a, it's a kind of a new thing. The only thing I don't really enjoy about it is that you have to like you only get three roars a day. And so you basically have to pop off one of each roar per day. Yeah, which seems a little annoying and frustrating. So if they're going to be any what any kind of combatant, like it, they're not doing a good job of it. So, but I guess technically only really have to do one roar at a time. But it just, I think that's the most interesting aspect. Other than you know, I can claw at things and I can teleport. But I think the roar is what makes them different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. James, uh, similar. I feel like they try to avoid fighting at all costs. But when they do fight, they'll fight as hard as they can, as quick as they can. I think I'm the opposite. Where they would use all three roars in their first three moves, hit yeah. the party as debilitatingly as they can, and if they don't take everyone out with some kind of mental attack, they're out of there. They teleport to a different place, and you've lost the fight. Yeah. Well, now you see that's interesting. What if you got into like the test itself is just withstanding the roars? So you get into this small chamber where this thing is flying around. It's it's small footprint, but it's like two hundred feet tall. It's like a giant cylinder. This guy is sitting at the top of it on a little perch and he roars down It echoes down. And if you fail to save, because the first one is about being frightened, right? When you're frightened, you have to move away, right? You can't move any closer. So I would write in that you have to move, you use your full movement to get away. Yeah. Then you have to do it again. You become deafened and frightened on the second roar. And then the third one is the thunder damage. You're not prone, but I would say that it pushes you out of the room. Anybody that's still in the room at the end of the third roar has succeeded on the test and now gets transported to the, and is going to leave the rest of the party behind. Yeah. And you're paralyzed if you fail the second roar. So you can't succeed the next one. Yeah. Succeed the next save. Beautiful. Like, I I love that. I think it's a lot of fun. You hit him as hard as you can. And if it doesn't work, you dip the fuck out because you don't want to be fighting. You don't need to be fighting. They failed the test by attacking you. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And honestly, um, banishment is, and, See, I also love it whenever a creature gets dispel magic because it's just like, oh shit, that person there with the the magical staff, the arcane focus. I'm just gonna, you know, make that mundane now. That's not magic. So now <laughs> you can't cast spells, motherfucker. And now the, your wizard's going, what? Yeah, right. Like they would always use banishment in a different plane. They would never use it in the normal plane you're pulled from. Yeah. So- Earth, for example, when you go to the air dimension, that's when they banish you. So you can't get back. Mm-hmm. You don't belong to this plane. Yeah. So I like there's there's some good little tactics here. I think they're pretty fun. 
But let's move on to uh to the gyno sphinx. I'm gonna call sphinx? I'm gonna call it the gyno sphinx because it fits. <laughs> I, I gotta look it up now. Uh yeah. I, I didn't actually take the time to look it up and how to pronounce properly, but like gyno sphinx kind of works. R- really? You didn't take the time to look up how to pronounce something, Megan? You know I how strange it, uh... how how strange of me to not do that, you know? I'm just unprepared. <laughs> But uh, while you're looking that up, I might as well just start. Um, so basically, if you look at the art for these ones, it is notably similar to, of course, the Andro Sphinx, where it does share the same lioness features, but is inherently feminine in nature. Hence, Gynosphinx, in my mind. <laughs> uh, and of course, this thought to look uh, and feel extremely regal, kind of like the queen of its lair. So this is your, your lioness, your queeness. It is thought that their piercing eyes are the gateways to time and space itself, and it is even thought that if you look directly at them, you might find yourself displaced or flung into another plane of existence. So very similar to the other sphinxes, they have the ability to morph and deal with time and space. Um, One of their extra purposes that's a little bit different is that, of course, these ones are the holders of all knowledge. So they are basically described as being a living, breathing library of lore. Uh, they do traditionally also speak in tongues and riddles as tradition uh, when folks come to reap their knowledge or seek their guidance. And of course, they will offer a trade um, or payment to be able to be seeing into their brain space uh, as long as they are impressed by their knowledge and their prowess. Or they also like treasure, so they'll they'll trade treasure for it sometimes, kind of like a dragon. When it comes to breaking them down a little bit, uh, they are, of course, large, lawful, neutral uh, monstrosities with a natural armor of 17, a speed of 40, and a flying speed of 60. But unlike its male counterpart, they have a lower CR of only 11. So they are a little not, not, we didn't think the other one was a combatant. This one is not necessarily a combatant either. Um, so as mentioned, this can be kind of seen at stats. They are lower in strength and con with only a plus four and a plus three and a lower charisma of only plus four, but they do beat them out in dex and intelligence with a plus two to dex and a plus four to intelligence. So that kind of bodes to their purpose. Um, and the fact that they're holders of all knowledge and kind of have that more intellect and a little bit more grace. So again, based on their purpose, they have skills in arcana, history, perception, and religion. Um, along with resistances to bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing, if non-magical, so very similar to its other counterpart. And they're actually immune to psychic damage, and of course, from being charmed or frightened. They also have true sight of 120 feet and can speak common and sphinx. So again, whatever the fuck sphinx sounds like. For abilities, they are also inscrutable. So as Adam mentioned before, this is them being immune to all effects that would sense their emotions or thoughts, including a divinity spells. They also have um, magic weapons. So same thing. Their claws and basic attacks will count as being magical. Meow. Meow. Uh, they are only, however, a ninth level spellcaster. You know? Only. We're using their intelligence as their spellcasting ability. So it does have some neat spells prepared. It does feel a little bit different. So I'll give you a couple of some of the ones that like feel a little bit more tuned to the, this one as it is. So they have minor illusion, detect magic, and identify. So this kind of checks out as being an all-knowing being. I feel like if you come up with something and show it something new and fancy, it's going to know what it is. They also have locate object, darkness, remove curse, and banishment, similar to um, its counterpart. But it's big final level one instead of the feast that the other one had. This one has legend lore, which is just kind of helps recall any and all lore of a specific topic or item which is very handy if the party is searching for that a knowledge MacGuffin. 
So, and then when it comes to their attacks, they have multi-attack with their claws. Uh, they also have legendary actions, which is similar to the Andro Sphinx, which includes being an extra claw attack, teleport, or they can cast one of their spells. So these ones don't have a roar or nothing. All they can do is scratch, talk to you in riddles, know more than you, and cast spells. These ones have even less for um, for damaging spells. Yep. Yeah. Like their only combat, their only combat stuff would be shield, darkness, and banishment. Banishment would be like your next closest one, but I feel like that's it's fuck you, get out of here. It's not it's not even a combatant. It's just yeets, right? Yeah. So yeah, All these right. ones I not built to fight. No. So. Let's uh let's grab dice. What, All right. what questions? Nineteen. There Twelve. You go. Redemption, James. Hell you did it. I got a fifteen. So James, you're first. What would you go to a gyno sphinx? Sorry. I looked it up. It's Gyno Sphinx. I've been saying Gyno Sphinx for years, and I don't know why. It is. I, went, I was right with Gyno Sphinx. It's Gyno Sphinx. It comes from Greek, meaning woman. I looked yeah. up the etymology of the word. Yeah, Andro means man, and Gyno means woman. It's like yeah. well, that's where the word gynecologist comes from. As yeah, well. like, that's what I was referencing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Um. So, James, do you have a uh uh? Why would you go to a gyno sphinx? Like, what what would be a quest or a MacGuffin? I feel like they would be a be a quest given from a religious group or a god to go recover an item. Because based on their spell list, it very well feels to me they're meant to infiltrate and find lost items mm-hmm. and either have a party bring them back or bring it back through a plane themselves. Like where the male guards the item, the female goes out and achieves it. Similar to how a pride of lions do it. The male stays at home and the woman hunts. That kind of idea. Yeah, almost like or if like a group sought out knowledge and in trade gave up a very important item. And then they take those items and give it to the Androsphinx to yeah. protect kind of thing. Like and they, they guard the horde together. Yeah, they transport the items, move them from place to place because they can hide in darkness. They can locate objects. They can give a suggestion. Like their spell list alone. Yeah. Move curse on a cursed item. Greater invisibility so it can still do fucking shit while invisible. Okay, Megan, what do you have for finding or for a, for a reason to go to a Gyno Sphinx? Uh, I like to play on the fact that they are extremely knowledgeable. I feel like if you're going to one of these, you're going for the knowledge MacGuffin. So if it's going to be something along the lines of uh, a piece of lore that was lost, like let's say there's a city or a sunken city that you don't know where it is or a treasure where you're trying to figure out where it was hidden, this would be what you would seek out to be able to just find that information. But knowing full well you were going to have to trade something of great importance. So this might be part two of a longer campaign where you are finding the one item that you know it will take for trade so that you can get the knowledge piece that you want. Okay, so I've got a I've got a thing. Mm. You get cursed by a coven of hags, and the only okay, creature, Dan, <laughs> the only creature that can remove the curse is the Gynosphinx because it's on the the spell list. Yeah, right. And the Gynosphinx says, "All right, pass this test," and then deems you unworthy. Go back, do uh, find a way to become worthy, and then come back and and see me within five days, and I'll do it. But the curse is like you, you cannot. Um, heal again or like your maximum hit points drops by one every day if you don't pass a save right so you've got a ticking clock and the gynosphinx says no i'm sorry you you were unable to pass this test uh you are doomed to die unless you go out and uh, come up with a reason for you to come back to me go get me this item or this knowledge or whatever and then 
you may try again once you've given me payment. Yeah, it becomes the quest giver after the visit. As you're sitting there watching your hit point maximum dwindle. And like, it's not just one player character. It's like maybe three of the party members and a couple of NPCs. And the NPCs, of course, have fewer hit points. So like... They die first. They're going to die. Imagine <laughs> your new players through time at that point. Yeah. Push seven years of time through them when they had lose one hit point a day. <laughs> Oops. Yep. Wow. Um, or you know what? Well, that's the great thing is, no, we're going to send you back uh, nine years. I'm not going to leave here, but there was this item that was once lost to me nine years ago. You can try again if you go and get it for me. Now, the question is, what if you kill that coven of hags nine years ago? Does your curse automatically drop? Like now you're going into paradox area. Uh, I make it simple. The hags didn't didn't show up until seven years ago. Like I I can just write that out as a DM. Yeah, but I would level the area so it's not even looking like the same hill the hags were on. So that area physically does not exist in time anymore. James, you're just going to end the campaign. You're just going to bloop out of existence. Fine. That solves the issue of being uh, poisoned or cursed. That was the whole reason <laughs> to go back in time. But, you may not be poisoned or cursed, but you no longer exist. But I had no reason to go back in time, so it's fine now. <laughs> you, you, you done got blooped. The universe will correct itself. Which means I never got cursed in the first place. <laughs> no, that's you correcting it. The universe corrects it by saying, no, this never happened in the first place. That character never existed. Guess what? Here's a brand new character sheet, James. You're a level two halfling um, college of eloquence bard. That ought to piss you off. You'd be dead in a day. <laughs> <laughs> murder what murder College of Eloquence. i get to cuss people out continuously do you think i care how strong they are no i let everyone know they're stupid in the fanciest way i can until someone oh. just just channeling your inner your inner andro sphinx yeah um so megan do you have any uh role-playing ideas for these guys um uh, these ones are in my mind because they're all knowing are gonna definitely have a a presentation of arrogance almost like they know everything you can't stump them right so it, and like i feel like if the group tried to and were successful at it it would be pissed off and like so i think with the kind of like how we talked about rules of when you speak to an andro sphinx i feel like with these ones you don't want to piss it off by feeling like you know more than it does mm -hmm. so then this is where your lawful good characters who are holier than thou may actually be the ones that shit the bed on this one because they're going to be like, oh, I know all of the things. And it's going to be like, do you? Do you? So <laughs> Here's a, It wouldn't be riddles. It would just be trivia questions. <laughs> Tell me what Britney Spears had for breakfast in 1991. Thank you very much. <laughs> James, do you have a role playing for this? For a guy in a sphinx? Uh, similar, but I would do the opposite. If you can bring them new knowledge, it makes your job or life easier with them. So if you bring them a book they don't have, that they've never read, the knowledge they've never acquired of some value, like knowing what you ate last Wednesday isn't important to them, but knowing what the king is allergic to is. So still tiny little bits of information that have very little value, but on the grand scheme of thing, knowing what a king is allergic to is a useful piece of information. If you're against the empire, that is. <laughs> yeah, maybe the, maybe the test is teaching it something new. Yeah. Well, yeah. that was going to be my role-playing thing was that maybe they're curious. I went into the curiosity killed the cat, but satisfaction brought it back, right? Like the idea that when you first walk in, this gigantic because in my head they're not they're not a large size creature stop making them lions make them 15 feet tall 
Like this thing should swoop down from the rafters of whatever library they're in, land in front of you, put their face right in yours and say, what are you? And why are you here? And what have you done? And just start to like grill you for questions. And and maybe the test is you have to be interesting enough. So your standard six year old. Yeah, kind of. But like not 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 with the like the ADD or the immaturity, just the like the excited the excited scholar that gets the new piece of information. You know the the um this is a this is a new kind of book that's going to like could potentially unlock my understanding of what's going on over here or the history of this or how magic works there or something right so um do we have any uh besides besides libraries because i think library i mean you hit the nail on the head earlier james library but this just screams library do we have anything else besides libraries and and archives that would be a good layer for these guys megan I was thinking within another dragon's layer, like one of the other knowledge-seeking dragon's yeah. layers. Yeah. Like I feel like they would feed off of each other and it would be one that guards the horde because there's pieces of knowledge and pieces of like, so it could, yes, be in the library of a dragon, but it would probably be in the horde, like just within the horde. You find a small statue and it is a sphinx, like one of these. Cool. Yeah. For me, I'm thinking a big city but everyone in the city has a tradition or ritual or however you want to put it of giving away new like when they learn something new they copy it down and give it away to an idol a statue whatever the case may be and the sphinx collects this information so the sphinx has a whole city gathering new information for it constantly i like the idea of putting it in a city as well i was thinking that but i was thinking it would be actually uh like an armory a magical armory where just like the most dangerous items are brought to it um and it hoards it away we don't destroy the items we just keep them in case the kingdom ever needs it or in case the council ever deems hey we're going to war bust out the magic weapons and so whenever magic weapons show up or they're too powerful or they're forbidden or whatever they use their mage hand to pick up the item they use pressure digitation to clean it off and then they identify it and then they you know, archive it somewhere in their their magical other plane, right? And then when it's time for you to come get it, and that's the thing, you've got to be worthy enough. And maybe the test is, okay, uh, go fill out form 137 slash B at City Hall. And that's actually going to be way more um, infuriating than, than you might think it is. Um, and then uh, you have to come back with this form filled out and they say, okay, come with me. And then they take you to this massive like repository. And it's just like, they're going to use locate object to be able to find it. Um, and, uh, and they would use their legend Lord to tell you everything that you need to know about it and how it works. And like, I just think it would be a lot of fun if they were just like archivists more than anything else. And that's the quest. Yeah, I like it. But I, some like what I was saying earlier, I would do. You get they get the first copy of everything. Yeah. So it's part of society's just norms that when you make a new type of armor, when you write a new book on new content, your first copy is getting sent to the royals or whatever, but it goes to the Sphinx. Like you may not know you're giving it to the Sphinx. The general populace may not know, but the higher ups do. That everything has to go to the Sphinx first. And that was the agreement the old king made to put his castle on this land. <laughs> the old king. <laughs> I like the idea. The old king. I, I like the idea too that like it goes off to the archive of the Sphinx and there's a giant stone carving of a Sphinx out front, right? And everyone's like, oh, okay. 
That's what it is. And you go in, there's actually a fucking Sphinx inside. Like, oh, oh, you were being literal. That wasn't just a, a you know, fanciful title. I wouldn't put um, the Sphinx at the front door, though. I'd make them, once you've gotten back past form B, then you meet the Sphinx. Yeah. <laughs> no suit here, you don't need to meet the Sphinx, but party looking for item X does. Like, up until that point, it's just a very short, fat, elderly dwarven woman who's just like, her hair's all askew and she's like the only librarian and and oh 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 okay you guys actually have the correct form filled out you can go talk to them everybody else form a line sit down who was next <laughs> number seventeen thousand four hundred nineteen. and then somebody comes forward to ask for whatever library book they're looking for and she's got to run off to the giant giant library and try to find it <laughs> um do we see combat at all for this creature avoids it as much as possible yeah, I would say avoids it. And like its spells can just can fuck your day up. Like being banished sucks. Dispelling all your magic sucks. Like suggestion sucks. Yeah. <laughs> like, so it could it could fuck your day up if it decides that it doesn't want you in the room anymore. So I still don't recommend getting into battle with one. But like I I yeah, I I don't think it's gonna fight you. It doesn't want to fight you. It, it it I feel like it would think that if it was to fight you. Where it is, you the the risk of you damaging the library is more <laughs> detrimental to its existence than getting the jivvies out of actually killing someone. Like, yeah, I also feel like it's going to retreat. Like round one, darkness on itself. Round two, greater invisibility on itself. Round three, fly the fuck away. Round three, banish one of the players so they panic and then fly away. <laughs> you and your damn chaos, James. It's the best way to get away. If everyone's panicking that another banishment's coming or another greater attack is coming, they're not going to put their perception out to see the door open on the far side of the hallway. And honestly, you do get uh, you do get two banishments and then a greater invisibility too. Yeah. So like you, you can do it a couple times. That's fun. Yeah. Because it'll come back after a minute with banishment, right? Right. <laughs> I can't remember. That. I've only used yes. one yes. separate plane where the thing didn't come from that plane either. So I know they were gone for good, but. Yeah, no, that you're right. It they come back in a minute. Yeah, standard yeah. management. They'll be back in a minute. So you're not even really hurting them. You're just getting the fuck away. You're just getting rid of the rogue and the barbarian because they're gonna just fuck up your day otherwise. Yeah, those first two hits off them will do real damage to you. So you want to get the hell out. So that brings us to the one variant sphinx um that we have, and that is the Guildmaster of the Azorius Senate from Ravnica. Um, her name is Isperia. And she is a supreme judge, and she believes in law and order above all else. There were also what's in um, in Ravnica mentions of the Sphinx of Judgment. They're just gynosphinxes. There's literally nothing else except that's their title. They're the Sphinxes of Judgment. When it comes to Asperia, I like to look at her as uh, an example of what I think a Sphinx should be um, when it's not tied to being like a... a lackey for a god um she's a supreme judge she believes in law and order above all else she prefers to be aloof and distant but often has to come forth to deal with crime and chaos around her right she knows that she's a powerhouse uh and will almost never use lethal damage when subduing an enemy but almost never is not never so like you're gonna fuck around and she's going to be the reason you find out um this is a great thing to use against your players when they're just murder hoboing their way through the kingdom. So, uh, Isperia actually comes with an ideal, a bond, and a flaw. 
Uh, the ideal is that the law provides direction for every arena of life. It is the only compass I need. The bond is, I can't stand by and watch disorder spread through the city. Without the Azorius, Ravnica would collapse. In the absence of order, we must establish it. And her flaw is, if Ravnica didn't need me, I would prefer to live a life of solitude and contemplation. All of that sounds very, very sphinxy to me. But she's a CR 21. When I, So I compared her up against the uh, Andro Sphinx. So I'm just going to go through this really rapid fire. Um, she's gargantuan. The art makes her the size of a castle, which is absolutely amazing. And that's the majesty of what I picture for a Sphinx in the first place. All of her math is increased, as you would expect to be a CR 21 creature. She gives up the religion bonus for increased abilities and history and insight because she's more about law. And her passive perception is 25. Um, she gets legendary resistances three times a day, which means that she can just choose to shrug off a spell or a spell-like effect. Um, she has magical resistance as well. So she has advantage on saves against spells and other magics. She does give up the claws being magical weapons, but she gives that up. She trades that in for, for this magical resistance. So like she's going to last longer, but she's not doing... Crazy amounts of damage. I said before, I don't think that really fucking matters to players. Um, her spell save DC is 23 and her spellcasting modifier is 14 as opposed to the 18 spell save and the 10 that an Andro Sphinx has. So it's a decent bump. Um, she's got a radically different spell list. If her claw attack hits you, you have to make a DC 23 wisdom save or take 46 psychic damage for every attack you make against her before her next turn. So you... Like, if she hits you, you will feel really bad hitting her back and might even, like, knock yourself out. Um, she also gets an action called the Supreme Legal Authority. Three creatures that she can see within 90 feet of her have to make a DC 23 intelligence save, and then she chooses one of the following. Attack, casting a spell, dash, disengage, dodge, help, hide, ready in action, search or investigate, or use an object. And you don't get to use that action for the next minute. You can try to save uh, at the end of each of your turns. Remember, she does not have a recharge ability on this. There's no limit to how often she can use this. So she can just hit you with this over and over and over again, removing what you are able to do. And it's a 23 intelligence save. So really, the Artificer and the um, Wizard are the only ones that are really going to pass this. She does get legendary actions, which again is a claw attack for one, cast a spell of third level or lower, that costs two legendary actions, or she can hit you with another supreme legal authority for three, which means she can technically in the span of a minute get this off 20 times. So I like what Isperia has to offer. I think that she's really neat as an addition. Um, I'm going to draw inspiration when I when I deal with her. Also, she's blue, which I think is really cool. Um and actually has the face of a humanoid. Uh, I think she's blue because she's one of the Vidalcan. Um, like that's her actual humanoid. It's not a human itself. So which was a, a neat little detail uh, that they went with. But do you guys have any thoughts? I don't want to go through a big rundown on this, but any thoughts about how Isperia is different from the other Sphinxes? I mean, she's she's scary. I don't want to fight her. Her abilities seem very, well, fuck your day up. <laughs> yeah, of the Sphinxes, she's the one I want to fight the least. Yeah. Um, how do you feel about uh, having a Sphinx be an actual like judge of being like a, a member of law? Because that's the whole deal with the Azorius Senate is they write the laws and they're not necessarily the enforcement, but they're willing to step up and put you back in your place. I mean, it fits. 
for Sphinx, I mean, we talked about like the fact that it judges good versus evil, like most Sphinxes generally do anyway. So it makes sense that the most powerful would have those capabilities. So I feel like thematically it makes sense. Yeah, it's one thing that the Sphinx has been told to protect is the law and has taken it to an extreme. Hello, Kitty. Oh, speaking of Sphinx, Megan just picked up Mo. My cat. Hello, Mo. You're being a brat. <laughs> um, <laughs> I put so down. I, I, <laughs> oh, here you go, James. Oh, it's cat time. Cat. <laughs> it's Sphinx time. <laughs> oh, it's so small in comparison. <laughs> oh, James, dear. is yours a uh, boy or a girl? He's a girl. Her name is Nehru from Legend I, of Zelda. I like this because the male is bigger than the female, just like the Sphinxes. Yeah. <laughs> um. Anyways. <laughs> Anyways, uh, J- James has turned his camera back off again. He paid the cat tax and then ran away. Um, yes, exactly. Uh, when it comes to um, Isperia, I kind of blitzed over it really quickly, but she's got some crazy spells, including Guidance and Light and Thaumaturgy. She also, like the low-level stuff, um, this is what she can cast as a legendary action. Command, Detect Evil and Good, Ensnaring Strike, Sanctuary, Shield of Faith, Arcane Lock, Augury, Calm Emotions, Hold Person, Silence, Zone of Truth, Bestow Curse, Clairvoyance, Counterspell, Dispel Magic, and Tongues. That's pretty powerful. And then beyond that, she's got just a bunch more. Like Dispel Evil and Good, uh, Locate Creature, she can scry. Um, She's got Divine Word and Anti-Magic Field. So like Powerhouse. Yeah. Major Powerhouse. I would almost have her be impatient with people that are breaking the law and stepping outside of of what the rules are um that would be her attitude is just look we made the law you know how this works and you're not doing it anyway sit down and if you don't sit down she will smack you until you are down non-lethal damage but she will like as you are sitting there trying to cast spells she will cast silence she will bestow a curse on you so that you have disadvantage on shit and she will take away your ability to attack or disengage or hide or whatever just to be like Sit down, shut up. It's your turn to listen now. I feel like the DM should just have one of these creatures in their back pocket at all times for unruly characters and players. Megan. Fucking Megan. I resemble that remark. (laughs) I wasn't going to blame myself, and Adam's not a player, so I had to blame you. (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) Dave's not here to take the blame. Already his fault I missed my D&D game because I forgot about this. I blame Dave for most things. So Me too. I'm comfortable with that. I don't blame um, Dave for anything. You should try. It's really cathartic. Nah. That's a it's also for. really funny. Fair. Anyway, before we go any further down the Dave bashing, let's uh, cut to our last ad break. If you've been inspired by the conversation in this episode, please feel free to reach out and share your creativity and ideas with us and the rest of the community. You can reach us on Facebook and Instagram or on our subreddit at r slash it's a mimic. Also, if you're feeling particularly generous, please follow and subscribe and leave us positive reviews, likes, and comments. Engagement like that helps us pop up on search engines and keep this show running. Final thoughts and inspirations? On Sphinxes, let's roll initiative. Sure. Five. I didn't hear either of you. 13 for me. Well... (laughs) You're going first, then I'm with a seven, and then James is is a five, so. Fair enough. Uh, Final thoughts, inspirations for these ones. I I think what kind of what we said at the very beginning of this episode, 
the fact that they're so open-ended can be a curse, but it can also be a blessing in the sense where you can kind of retcon this to fit within your campaign and your world wherever you want to. Um, I think that the accessibility of them is actually a lot larger than we think that it is. Like when you first look at them, you're like, okay, well, why would this be here? Why would it be chosen for this? And like, I think we have to remember way back at the beginning, they're chosen by gods to do this. So obviously they're going to be strong, magical, religious relics that just kind of exist for the purpose of why gods decide that they exist, right? So sometimes it doesn't have to have a major rhyme or reason. It's just because, yeah, God decided that it was going to be here, right? But um, I think talking about them more and seeing a little bit of the customization that they've already done with like the two major ones mixed in with this other godlike one that we just talked about really bodes you could make one up for yourself that fits into your world. So don't be scared. I think they're kind of cool. And I also feel like if you want to do a Sphinx, I don't feel like you have to make it like Lioness. You could make it something else if you wanted to. Who cares? Get creative. It's not like fifth edition gives a shit. Literally, they didn't give a shit when they were designing it. So like. So why are we giving a shit? Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, Because they're really cool if you can figure out the proper way to do it. Um, but players don't want to be tested, right? They They want to succeed. They want to win. And every combat is a kind of test, right? Like every encounter is a kind of test. But sitting them down and saying, there is a right answer to this riddle. You must find it or your character is going to die, which is how they're written to be, is kind of shitty. My, right? my, me as a player would just lie down on the floor and die. <laughs> like <laughs> As a player, sure. Your current character would be like, what if I headbutt you to death? What if I killed it? <laughs> yeah. Have we tried murder today? Um, but this, uh, like, I, I feel like you have to know your party really well, um, to figure out the, what the, the quests, uh, or the tests or the whatever is like to move forward, whatever the riddle or the, the challenge is going to be. Now I have some suggestions, um, at the end of Tasha's, there's a bunch of different riddles and, uh, and little puzzles for people to do. So if you own Tasha's Cauldron of Everything and you want to throw a Sphinx in, go pick up that book and take a look there. Also, we just got the Keys to the Golden Vault, which is all about heists and shit, which is very much a test. You guys have to go figure out how to go do this thing. And if your Sphinx says, the goal is to get into this prison or bank or archive or whatever it is, go in there, do this heist, bring me back a thing. You can go in there and do that. And that's a really cool set piece. And the Sphinx is really just a quest giver at that point. And they absolutely can be, and that's okay. Um, my big thing is that you should never want to fight one of these things ever. Um, and if I ever have a Sphinx in combat, uh, they're usually going to be fighting something like a dragon. And they're probably going to get murdered. Like you're fighting alongside the Sphinx. Because it has healing shit and restoration and all that crap. So, right. They're going to be, I put them versus hags earlier. But yeah, Isperia will fight an ancient dragon, right? And probably lose, but that'll be a big-ass cool set-piece battle that I will narrate based on the inspiration I get from the stat block, right? I'm not going to roll dice for that. You'll just see it happening. Um, shit like that, right? So, James, do you have any final thoughts? They should be able to cast tongues for Ferdy. I think so. Yeah. That's my that one thing I thought about all of them. Like, yeah, I have a lot of other issues, but we've discussed it throughout the episode, and you can notice it yourself when you read through it. But tongues for free is one of my, it doesn't make sense, why not? 
Especially when they're like the keepers of all knowledge. Why would they not? You're connected to a god. At the very least, you should be able to speak to anyone who comes and interacts with you. Yeah. Or at the very least, be able to cast tongues, even just making everyone speak stinks when they talk to you. Yeah. I, I think that's really cool. It's weird they don't have message. And also, my other thought is Tongues for Free is a great name of a metal album from like 1994. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a D&D themed uh, metal band. Yeah, Tongues for Free. <laughs> Oh my goodness. I'm not, I, yeah, we're going to move right on. Megan, take us out of this episode. <laughs> so that's all for this discussion on Sphinxes in D&D 5th edition. Make sure that you subscribe or follow and check back regularly to see what inspirations and insights we'll have for you in the future. Thank you for listening to another episode of the It's a Mimic podcast. If you'd like to support us, we have a donate button on our website, www.itsamimic.com, a store with some It's a Mimic merch and a Patreon. This episode and others can also be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and most other podcast apps. Thanks again for listening to It's a Mimic, where you never know what you're going to get. This has been an It's a Mimic production. Please check the show notes for this episode to see links, time codes, and credits. And don't forget to reach out and share your own inspirations. I love that it asks you that before you say, yeah, it's okay. I'm just going to leave this fucking meeting. Thanks, Zoom. (laughs) I did not agree to be recorded. Fucking Zoom. All right. So that's all for this discussion on Sphinx Eye. No, fuck. (laughs) I'll do it right. So that's all for this discussion on Sphinxes in D&D 5th edition. Make sure that you just subscribe. Make sure that you... Hey, you lied to me. You said you were going to do it right this time. (laughs) No, incorrect. It's the end of the day. (laughs) The answer, by the way, because I did remember, the answer is a man. (laughs) Yeah. It is a man. So the, the prompt at the very beginning in the cold open was what has one voice but goes out on four legs in the morning, two in the afternoon, and three in the evening. The idea is man, like humankind, man does. Four legs because you're crawling when you're a baby. Two for the majority of your life when you're walking around. And three because you have a cane yeah. at the end. So, you know, you have three. Like, it's weak. It's a it's a metaphor, I guess. But like. Yeah. A metaphor for mortality. I feel is yeah. what it is. But like stupid. But as soon as I read the answer, I was like, oh, yes, I have heard this before. One time in my life, and it was because of that movie Mirror Mask, which I recommend watching if you've not seen it. Is it good? It's very good. Yeah. All right. Okay, I'll check it out. Mm-hmm. I thought of another riddle. Oh God. What breaks once a day and fall with it breaks once a day and falls without breaking. My sanity. Fair. <laughs> Adam, what you got? Gone. The sun. Yeah. Sun breaks in the morning and falls at night. Yeah. No, my so, sanity. Maybe like sanity like, doesn't start ever. It's just gone. Like silence. Like we break the silence first thing in the morning and then uh, never falls. No. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I'm thinking daybreak. So yeah. sun. That's a good one. There you well, go. The one we had earlier was the moon. So there we go. That's I knew it from that. There's uh, two parts to that riddle where sun and moon are the answers to it. Very so, cute. I have been. I have pulled out riddles before. The place I always grab riddles from is the end of the last book in the Dark Tower series by Stephen King. Uh, at the end of the Wastelands, all the characters get trapped on a train that is, like, intelligent. 
and the train is, has gone insane and is going to crash and is speeding through the landscape at like intense speeds. And the only way to actually slow it down is to answer its riddles to keep it from going insane. And so it's <laughs> just, a, but like the riddles are really good. Mm. They're really fun. And you could figure them out if you stop and thought about them. Like they're the right level of riddle. But I, I have leaned on that more than once. So you know, if you're listening and you're like, where am I going to find riddles? You don't want to do a Google search. That's That book has got some like great ones in it. Anyway, let's, uh, let's kill this episode, shall we? And save it. Yeah. Sounds good. Thank you, thank you, thank you for another successful episode. Mm-hmm. I got to avoid a big fight in D&D. My character gets to live whether the rest live or not. The best way to live is to not show up to a session. Yeah, that's not true. We killed Dave. <laughs> yeah, but he had it coming. That's fair. <laughs> Delightful. Delightful. Why are you still here? Leave already.